Everybody, welcome to another installment of Show to Be with Mike G, the show of Seattle, the show of pop, the show of trombone. Lots of stories today with the education chair of the Houston USBG, Mr. Alex Granza. We talk about Anvil, we talk about Seattle, we talk about a former career as a barista. There's a lot to this conversation, and one thing is very clear, Alex is extremely organized and extremely driven. I guess you have to be to pass that blind tasting of spirits at Anvil now, don't you? So hope you guys enjoy this chat with Alex Negronza. Thursday morning, actually Wednesday night, I need to go to Chicago. Oh yeah, I and saw I that. Flew. Yeah. I, I flew to Chicago for eight hours. And really? yeah. My flight left at 6 a.m. I or six actually it left at 7 a.m. I landed in Chicago at 9:30. Yeah. I spent, you know, a little bit of time having coffee. But I go straight to Intelligentsia in Logan Square. Yeah. And I walk up to the barista, and I'm just like trying to get my like what was going on, what's happening, and I'm like kind of moving along through the line, and they're like, "For here to go, sir." I'm like, "Uh, espresso for here, and then a coffee to go." And I'm looking around, and someone's like, "Alex." I look up, and it's a barista that I know. Holy shit. And her and I hung out at a house party yeah. with a former United States barista champion that I helped train for a competition years ago. Really? Five years ago. Wait. And, you're and, tr- wait, man, okay, so this, this story, the story thickens. It becomes more rich <laughs> now. There's, there's so many questions. They're just percolating right now. As we so talk. she goes, Alex? And I'm like, oh, oh, hi. It turns out she's a regional trainer for um, Intelligentsia Coffee. And I'm like, moving i'm holding up the line and so i look over and i'm like oh i'm sorry and i look over and it's this guy with a pig and punch or a swig and slime oh, shirt shit, are you on. kidding me and i'm like hi i'm alex <laughs> and he's like hi i'm like sorry i've been I to swig feel like we should know i, I need other, to know yeah. you because we we probably have a lot of friends in common you yeah. know like you have a swig and swine shirt on I'm a bartender. And yeah, I, it's like I've you get him at Buffalo Exchange or some shit. Like they don't just like pop up. Yeah, know? exactly. So it turns out his name's Ube, really awesome guy based out of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm saying that right. But um, and we just he's like a, he's a cap. He's heading down to tails. He's like I'm like great, dude, awesome. And we just like happen to meet in line in this weird moment. Five minutes of me being yeah. in Chicago. The world, you know, it's funny because like everything size is perspective, and there's there's not that's not. I'm just, you don't have to make a joke about that, right? Like it is. Like China's huge. Yeah, yeah. China this seems huge, right? I've seen mm-hmm. it on the maps, massive billion plus population. But as things kind of go, and you find yourself in these random places around the world, the world really does become a lot smaller. Like you can be in Japan. We, you know, we meet someone that we knew in China. It's like holy shit, you worked at Anvil. Like yeah, this place, right? Like that happens. That yeah, happens. Totally I've does. heard so many stories about like. You know, I, I don't know if I remember if it was Bobby or um, or Jesse, but they were at a bar someplace in Europe, sat down, and they started talking. And like, someone was like, "So where are you from?" Like, oh, Texas. Oh, I have a friend who owns a bar in in Houston. And he's <laughs> yeah. like, "That's where I'm from." And like, turns out like 
this 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 world gets smaller and smaller and it turns out that they knew Bobby and it's, they were and just like all right I gotta I gotta go <laughs> like yeah, yeah it's like yeah it happens all the time but I think that the what that really gives credence to is the industry as a whole and this is kind of an, an interesting topic that's grown so go back ten years the hospitality industry although a necessary evil to some right it wasn't a lucrative career right you couldn't necessarily build a career out of it because people. You know, they felt drinking was a means to an end. But as they started to get more concerned about their food, they started getting more concerned about their drinks. And thusly, it takes a lot of nuance and talent. Like, how long have you been? Yeah. How long have you been doing this stuff? So my first coffee job was. So I was in music. And I actually realized wait, 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 what uh, what aspect of music? Uh, Are you w- a hype guy? No, no, no. Okay, okay. a little bit. Uh, <laughs> but I wouldn't say no. So actually, I, I went to school and studied um, music. I really? played. I played trombone. I played trombone for probably six, seven years. Is the spit valve as gross to you as it is to me? It's even worse. Okay, I have, there's, I have some stories about spit valves, but um, the wor- yeah, the worst. We, we we can skip over those. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so I went to I went to school to study music. I uh, played, you know, California State Honor Band stuff like that. Um, loved trombone, classical yeah. music, jazz, like swing, uh, funk, fusion. Because um, trombone's not easy. It's it's fun. Yeah. It's 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 a very it's weird because you. It's a low brass instrument that mm-hmm. has some of, like a high brass component to it. Right. It has right. potential for it, but it actually kind of rides that area has some really fun like riffs and anyways it's so, interesting i'm an alto sax guy Full okay disclosure. got it okay so again, got it. So okay, we, i played in symphony band got it, got it. Yeah. yeah 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 it's good it's not a bad it's not a bad instrument but so because i love talking about classical yeah was there a guy that really you start you first heard their work and you're like shit okay music has just opened up for me two two musicians two composers um john williams yeah, of course. Big pop sensibility. Big, big just like yeah, yeah. the fact that like when I first heard his music, I was like, God, this guy's from 1700. <laughs> and like, turns out John Williams is performing like these like amazing Americana style, like just high brass, yeah. lots of emotion and feeling. And it was like, I was like, wow, this is really cool. And then there was um, Gershwin. Oh, of course. Love yeah. Gershwin. Rhapsody in Blue. Right? Rhapsody in Blue is my jam. I love Rhapsody in Blue so much. Every single time I hear Rhapsody in Blue, it's I'm just beautiful. Like, yeah, I want to like. I, I've played like jazz, funk, and like fusion, and like like high brass, and like slow yeah um, ballads of it, and like then the I played the classical side of it before in the honor band, and I've played a whole bunch of different components of it, and it's always such a fun piece because it moves so fast and mm-hmm. it's dynamic, and it's I don't know. Yeah. And there's weird like half step increments too. Like that was the one thing I learned about it. It was one of the the prototypical songs about like oh any breaks key here yeah. right yeah which is really really kind of cool and and it's it's a it's a piece that you actually have to feel you can't play gershwin and be like i'm gonna read the music and right. what like, it's not Sousa. exactly which is Sousa, gong, who is gong, gong, so yeah exactly see this is the band this is the <laughs> essence of band nerdness right now which it's, i like that though it's good there's something about like emotion and the intangible that you have to like feel not just as um as a musician with your conductor, right. but also as a musician with an ensemble, you have to like tap into this energy that's both around you in your section and in in the entire symphony. Yeah, you have to really be a part of. It. And I just, I that was the first piece that I played and was like, 
oh man, this is amazing. Did you, yeah. was so musical? So we talked. You talked about Modesto. So you're growing up. <laughs> when is so the band stuff? When did that kind of start mm-hmm. to come into play? When you were so in your I, teens or earlier? I I, I left. I, I left, I guess I graduated high school and started going to the local JC um, because I didn't have an answer, but I didn't want to yeah. can, like just... Wait, JC, tell me... Manesto Junior College. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. so, and that is... Um, Manesto Junior College is just this weird place. Manesto in itself is about a... It's a really large farm city in the middle of California. Yeah. It's got a population of about 350,000 people-ish. Oh, wow. Ish. Yeah. But it's like the largest city in the middle of nowhere. It's a big farm town basically yeah yeah um that is most famous for a corrupt politician named gary condit and then that sounds real familiar even maybe i know mr condit lacy peterson okay you which, know which one's lacy Pe- why is that something lacy peterson was an eight and a half month old pregnant woman who was murdered by her husband scott peterson on ah, christmas eve scott peterson she was she yeah. lived actually about five or six doors down from me are you kidding me yeah you didn't hear it did you uh, it didn't happen at the house, but okay, good, good, but right. uh, it was I really want weird that to be on your like <laughs> losing sleep every night. For no, 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 no. It's it's interesting though because that's that's Modesto. You know, yeah. Modesto's and the other thing that Modesto is known for that's infamous is a little uh, wine company called Gallo Wine. Yeah, I think I heard of them too. Yeah. Gallo, actually, it's a yeah. small company. They're, they're real small. Yeah, I think the smallest in the the, the market. <laughs> they're probably. pretty big. Yeah, you can <laughs> small little tasting. Show. Um, but uh, Gallo. Um, Modesto is interesting. You know, George Lucas went to high school there. Yeah. I actually went to high school with my stepdad. And really? some of my yeah. And some of my like my aunts and uncles and stuff like that. Downey High School. The Downey Ducks. Downey Ducks. I they, like yeah, it. Yeah. yeah Where they might did they didn't have the the Mighty Ducks didn't come from this, did they? Uh got it. If that happened, that would be amazing, actually. I wouldn't I couldn't vacuums are creative in, in created in towns like Modesto or in That's true. Sandy, Utah. Right? Like exactly. That's what happens socially, right? Yeah. You get this people. There's not really like a common narrative and people find their own way and thus you have this, this huge melting pot. It's interesting because in my experience from the people that I like went to elementary school and high school with, you you have this this city that doesn't really produce anything. Yeah. It produces stagnant people. Right. People who accept reality and they don't have drive and they just kind of end up doing this thing. Or it produces people that have so much ambition and angst and drive that they just kind of like, I gotta get the fuck out of here. here. Yeah. And they just explode and they yeah. just like go and do dynamic, insane things. Yeah. And like their past and their history shapes them. And mm-hmm. I think that's kind of what happened with me is I was studying music. I was um, working with, with local bands, getting them into like small cafes. And mm-hmm. I was studying a lot at cafes. So I just easily networked and yeah. people ended up noticing me and I ended up working at a cafe, which then, you know, a brand new like, at the time, it wasn't anything, but it was an artisanal coffee shop. Sure. You, know, opened you did up. that in quotes. I think that's worth noting. Because I think the artisanal <laughs> coffee shop nowadays, yeah. you know, this was 2006, 2007. Wow. You know, if you were to say artisanal coffee shop nowadays, people would be like, ah, okay, someone, you know, someone from Portland's opening up a new place. I know. But in Modesto, California, this farm city, like, it was Starbucks. Yeah. And I really mean that, like, that, that was it. If you wanted coffee, like, Starbucks was your jam. So you had this first alternative, basically. And it was the first time that anyone came into the industry with, like, something new. And, like, there wasn't even a coffee shop culture. Coffee didn't really come around until 2000 and, I guess, 2006, 2008 yeah. was really when we started to see a culture develop in um, direct trade relationships with producers and mm. farmers at Origin, when we started to see sustainable buying practices, when we started seeing places like, 
you know, if you look at the timeline of Ritual Coffee, Intelligentsia, mm. um, you look at Stumptown, yeah. you know, you look at uh, Counterculture Coffee and all these cof- uh, coffee shops around the country, a lot of them didn't start to grab traction until the late 2000s, and, yeah. you know. Um, well, so, so it's an interesting thing because I'm like, okay, your music, you're passionate about this, very creative-centric, like this yep. kind of this right brain thing, I think. I always flip those. But at, at any rate, so very creative. You're doing the junior college thing. But getting a job and working in this industry, it sounds like maybe you're starting to develop this kind of paradigm about food or paradigm about the ethics of how people are treated. It, I totally fell into it, uh, to be honest. Yeah. Like, um, I got this job offer. I was doing this pop-up event with a bunch of musicians from around the country. And mm-hmm. I was like, the owners of the cafe were like, yeah, totally. You can have you can have this, this space for one night. Um, and I ended up running like, the coffee bar as well as like making like small bites and food yeah. while hosting like a VIP area for like musicians and like like personalities right, and right. then had like a, another VIP section for like local fans mm-hmm. that we had like done contests for and then there was like the general public and I was running lighting and like MC and I was running around and it was me and one other person and I was running point on all these yeah. things and um a small owner of a new coffee shop that was opening up found me and was like, Hey, you should come work for us. Right. And basically just grabbed me and hired me. That's incredible. And so where do you, where did you even get a sense to understand how to do that stuff? Were, were your folks like your stepdad or your mom or no. in the industry? I have no history of like, nothing, right? No, my, my stepmother is, um, is, uh, a government economics teacher for seniors in high school okay. at Modesto high school. Well, we could draw some kind of weird gray parallel to your ability to understand costs. yeah right right i I actually attribute that to jeffrey morgenthaler and being transparent about like the cost of a cocktail and like having a blog yeah oh yeah but um uh you know my father works in corporate america my Mm -hmm. stepfather is a chiropractor and anatomy and physiology professor and my mom is kind of a stay-at-home mom so like there's really no sense of like of service industry or serving others or anything like that um in my family but just like a a, in it you guys are all erudite, very, very academically driven. You want to learn. That's what it seems like. Everybody's Everyone in my together. family. Everyone in my family yeah. was that way. It's like get a college degree, get a family, get a house. You know, my, my grandparents are, my dad's side of the grandparents are um, first generation in the United States. Oh, you know, wow. He was in from, where? from the Philippines. So he grew up in the Philippines. Uh, my grandfather was in the Navy for the Philippines and, mm-hmm. you know, through the lottery system was able to come to the United States and wow. settle his family here. But my entire family was born in the Philippines. My dad, my aunts, my uncles. No kidding. And so there, I think a lot of their mentality, this comes from psychology too. I studied psychology and music. Those you are and I two both. Things. We're going to keep talking about this shit. <laughs> if Freud doesn't come up, yeah, I'd exactly. be real surprised. Uh, Kinsey. Kinsey and Freud are my two. Um, sex and <laughs> thoughts. Thoughts. I guess. Yeah. That's about it. <laughs> Thinking about overanalyzing sex. There you go. You guys, there you go. Perfect combination. Yeah. Um, but, I, you know, my... my my father was kind of the first one to settle into the States. Mm-hmm. And so I think that a lot of my aunts and uncles, their goals, which I hope they don't ever hear this, is to like I'm settle. Find them now. Yeah, just like <laughs> find them on Facebook. Uh, and the um, is to find find a partner, find a, a house, right? Uh-huh. And raise a family. And that was it. That's the dream, right? That's for decades that's been the I, dream. I think that's been the American dream for, for a long time. But a lot or not. Exactly. But there's there's something that is buried into that idea of um, the American dream, mm-hmm. which is content. 
right? And something that I've had a problem with my entire life is being content. I had this insatiable appetite to like go and like experience and like push myself and find something new and like continue to like evolve an idea or evolve a concept or evolve something that you're thinking about and see where does this go? How does right. this become something? But so, so let me ask a question. So you talk about the contentment and if you plot life, it's got to be so being real, real sad is a negative 10, let's say. Being real, real happy is a positive 10. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, all I really want is a culmination of moments that puts me right at like a one or two, like average it out. So the thing about contentment, which is really, really easy, is it sounds like isn't contentment a little bit more of a subdued form of ambitious and ambition and being like a go-getter, which you're kind of talking about that stuff, which I almost feel like the stress of doing new things all the time, which I appreciate, would be disparate from being content. It's interesting because... I think what Such inevitably no, <laughs> inevitably what ends up happening is I and I saw this in, in in some of my relatives and like my sister who could not be more separate. She's completely she's so different than me. Yeah. But um it's you get to this point where you accept your reality. Mm-hmm. And so much of me has gone against accepting a reality, right? Why, why? Yeah. Why do you have to accept your reality? There's this quote that I read early on. I was probably 17 or 18 um, by a, a philosopher named uh, Marshall McLuhan. Okay. Actually, and the quote is: "There is absolutely no inevitability as long as there is a willingness to contemplate what is happening." Absolutely. Yeah. And I was just like, "Wait a minute, that's so crazy to think about." Like. You're a victim if you allow yourself to be a victim. Right. Like, you're totally, if you don't like something about your life, do something about it. Totally. The world's you know? a stage. If you want to play the part the rest of your life, so be it, right? You exactly. You want to be a house mom. You want to be a house dad. It's fine. Yeah. No one's going to be pissed at you, but we're only here once or twice, whatever. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we have this one chance to, like, really, really extend, overextend ourselves in every way. And if you don't, I feel like you're kind of just cheap, cheaping out. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I think that that's... That's been a constant drive behind me through music, through coffee, through bartending and, and through hotels and hospitality and like all these other things that I've done in my life. Like it's always been like, great, you want to do something different? Then do something different. Totally. Like, no one's you, holding you back. Exactly. Right? And and that's like I've gone through so many different like that's what got me to move to Seattle. Yeah. It's what got me to move from Seattle to Houston. It's what's gotten me to like experience all these crazy things that I've done and work for the people I've worked for. It's Never just stop like, stopping. Yeah, exactly. Just like do something. That's my favorite. Try something. Yeah. So did at some point though, I think you made maybe we both made this decision, but music would remain something we always loved, but it wouldn't become the way we made our living. Exactly. They got to this point in music where I realized that if I was going to make a career, make a life for myself, mm-hmm. um, and I was going to be happy with it, that I would have to do things I didn't want to do. I'd have to work way too hard, and I would have to work for music, and I couldn't love music. Right. I couldn't, you know, and like, there's this balance that gets lost, yeah, you know, and so coffee was this really fun and new thing, and I was like, great, I'm going to go do coffee. I'm going to like, and I loved coffee, and then I, I had the same issue with coffee. I was like, coffee's not a sustainable lifestyle you know and like there's all these things that are broken in the coffee world on the barista side of things Mm of not being able to have health insurance or overtime or the proper training or the support structures or whatever it might be heart palpitations that's another one people don't talk about that exactly (laughs) i I have nine cups of coffee today one time 
ran, I used to do a lot of, um, Seattle, Washington's home of a lot of espresso machine manufacturers. Oh, okay. Um, La Marzocco has their um, only other world office except for out of Milan. Oh, wow. It's Milan and Seattle. Um, Seneso is a manufacturer based out of Seattle. Um, Slayer Espresso Machines is based out of Seattle. And two of the three largest um, espresso like supply companies are uh, based out of Seattle, with the really? third one being about an out, hour outside. That's crazy. Why? Yeah. Why is that the the mecca of? It's coffee. Yeah. Starbucks. I don't know if you've heard of Starbucks. It's just, uh, yeah, it's a big yeah, thing in Modesto, sure. California. It's from where? <laughs> Portland. Is that right? Definitely no, from no, Seattle. Sorry. Definitely from Seattle. But <laughs> but no, that's interesting to think that like San Francisco's fish fish land, right? Mm-hmm. Wharf, right? Like seafood and all that, and then Seattle, which also has a wonderful market and all that. But like to think that. There's probably it's, more fish based out of Seattle than than San Francisco. You're probably right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's Gap and stuff. So, it's Alaska and it's, Gap and yeah, we can skip that. <laughs> but it's like Seattle, mm-hmm. the city that coffee built. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, I never. I, I guess I never think about it that way. Like that was where it started. That's where it spread from. It's where the in the industry we talk about like Starbucks mainstreamed a latte, mm-hmm. which oh, yeah, yeah. without it's the the mainstreaming of the latte is the equivalent to vodka pays the bills. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. exactly what it is like you know and we had we had that internal dialogue in the industry with with lattes and vanilla lattes and you know what do you do you know do you tell a guest no i can't make you a caramel macchiato right what's that dialogue look like if you have vanilla and caramel and you can make technically what they're asking for which is a starbucks drink sure but instead you give them this true definition of what a caramel macchiato is right so yeah, th- there's yeah. an internal dialogue in the coffee industry but you just drew the best an- like analogy that i've heard all month it's, so it's still early in the month, but still, that yeah. like that that actually frames it for me perfectly. Because I vodka, come on, how exciting is that shit? It's not really very exciting at all, but it is a means to an end. And for some people, it's the exact perfect introduction they need to get into something more meaningful. Like right, gin. right. It's <laughs> funny because I I don't know how I didn't have this revelation earlier in the bartending world, but someone they come up to me and like I want something vodka. I don't know. I don't know what I like to drink. I just drink vodka and sodas and you're just like that you literally are giving nothing like you have given me that the fact that you like drinking alcohol (laughs) and that you don't know who you are as a person and like that you don't know how to articulate what you like as as a human as an adult a lot of flaws here and like and as a bartender that gets so frustrating but you know obviously there's a lot of you can read in between the lines it's like customers reaching out to you they like don't know how to articulate the same vocabulary that you have, yeah, which is yeah. totally fine. And I realized the other day, I was like, man, I'm just going to serve every single person that wants a vodka soda or, I don't know, something like a vodka soda, not too sweet, right. but like I'm going to serve them an Aperol spritz. Oh, perfect. And yeah. every single one of them is going to like it. And then immediately afterwards, whether it's after I give it to them or while I'm making it or when they come back, they're going to ask me, what was that? Yeah. I want something else like that. And that immediately opens up a dialogue where we're on the Gateway same page. Drug, the Aperol and they, Spritz. Aperol Spritz. Yeah, exactly. I never thought about that before. It is the perfect. It's a, it's the perfect. I want a vodka soda, something not too sweet. Aperol Spritz. Yeah. I don't know. I just like, I, it happened a month ago. And I That's was incredible. like, what's wrong with me? I've, I've been bartending <laughs> wrong my entire life. So you're going to transition to the uh, Aperol brand and bachelor ship here real soon. That's it. It's just Aperol and Scrappy's lavender bitters. Makes, <laughs> makes perfect sense. Champagne and soda water. Well, so can I make the assumption that coffee took you to Seattle then? Or was it just like, I want to get more immersed in, in the culture, so I'm just going to go to where the culture is? Coffee took me to Seattle. Um, I went to Seattle with $200 mm-hmm. and two duffel bags. 
actually three hundred dollars in two duffel bags, and that's it. It had gold bricks, so oddly it was enough, gold bricks, and it was like six million dollars. I, <laughs> I don't know what the bricks. <laughs> See, if you paint the picture, sometimes it's a different narrative. Like, oh man, Alex was so poor. Like, no, he actually had a lot of uh, like liquid assets. S- Seattle was such a crazy experience for me. You know, I went there with nothing. Mm. I worked for a boutique youth hostel. Uh, they, they had just opened up three weeks earlier. I was their first employee. I ended up managing it, and ended up opening other boutique hostels and hotels with that same company for a number of years um and like got involved with coffee and like studied coffee and just kind of like had this transition of like you know at one point i was homeless Mm -hmm. in seattle for about you know three months and like and at other times i was living in like a a four-story mansion Hmm. you know with a couple of roommates like negative 10 plus 10 exactly See, so now you're coming back to contentment which is the book which no, apparently no is Houston, house? Texas. I don't know. Yeah, I <laughs> <Contentment> is- <laughs> <laughs> but that's like that is that's exactly illustrates what what I'm talking about. It's like, well, I was living on the streets for two days, but then for two days I lived in a mansion. Yeah, fucking even. You're breaking yeah. even, right? You break even. Perfect. Yeah. Are you a Seinfeld fan? Oh, of course. Okay. You know, there's a great episode about Jerry. He's like, you're up, you're low. Oh, like, that's right. Yeah. You know, uh, Elaine's down and George. Elaine is down and George is up, and yeah. then they, yeah, that's awesome. But Jerry, for somehow, always did pretty good. He, he always, played. He played in the pocket. He always, he always Same even with Kramer, out. Always in the pocket. Yeah, uh, Drinkwell was actually playing Seinfeld. Oh, were they really for for their Tiki Sundays? And we actually had to explain to him the the Dingo ate your baby, which is an amazing movie with classic. Sam Neill and Meryl Streep that people don't even realize is a movie. Yes, yes. but. And it's it, it, so of the time, but I'm, you know, I was watching that movie. But anyway, yes, it's very, very, very okay. We can just, <laughs> Seinfeld. We want to talk about Seinfeld. It's God, so- <laughs> we can do a whole fucking show on Seinfeld. I tell you one thing though, and then we'll, this will be to tie the Seinfeld topic off. No one since and no one before ever talked about even Freud or Kinsey talked about shrinkage. <laughs> Nobody has ever. I was in the, the pool. <laughs> I was in the pool. No one has ever. Yeah. In detail, talked about the phenomenon, which is probably an evolutionary need to keep safe and keep the boys, you know. It is warm. exactly what it is. It, yeah. is. it is. It is absolutely like I studied human sexualities, and the only other time that we brought up the shrinkage was yeah. we actually played a Seinfeld clip. That's right. In my human sexualities class, and we described the need to, you know, bring the boys up closer to your body to keep them it's warmer. Like and the there's turtle a, retracting its head. It's, and that's a more brutish analogy, but yeah. it is kind. We're of gonna the go same with that. Yeah. <laughs> But yes, Seinfeld, very influential yes. on my really strange sense of humor, as it <laughs> seems like probably for you as well, which is, is great. This is great. Yeah, I'm so it. amidst all of the homelessness and then living in mansions and things, how long were you in Seattle kind of overall? I was in Seattle for eight years. Oh, that's a long time. Yeah. What would you consider was that kind of, I imagine your career kept building up and you hit like a particular yeah. apex before you left. Um. Yeah. So through my time in Seattle, I was, you know, a barista. I was a barista trainer. I... Mm-hmm worked i judged numerous uh regional barista championships i was a five-time certified united states barista championship judge Jeez. i worked with you know i opened up a few coffee shops with a few different people and i consulted on that yeah. and um in we'll circle back around that in a second but ended up basically having a client that kind of drove me crazy in a good way or a bad way oh god in a horrible way okay <laughs> The only time that I'll ever ac- socially accept the term like drove me to drink. Ah, yes. Like, because I think I, in the industry, it's a little, it's really hard to like use that term. And, yeah, it's like it's my a, shoot, my pants don't fit anymore. Okay? Yeah, it drove me to drink. It drove me to drink. Well, Gosh, that's not uh, really the essence. I got of it, yeah. bitters on my shirt. Yeah. Uh, I gotta take a shot. <laughs> no, but like, I think that yeah. 
that Stuart looks at this. Um, but the this client just drove me crazy, and like it was it was bad. And I could either go home and take a left and go four blocks, or I could take a right and go six blocks and go to the bar. It's okay. like home four blocks, the bar six blocks, and right. so I started going to this bar once or twice a week, two or three times a week, yeah. three or four times a week, seven days a week. Uh, yeah, open to close. Yeah. <laughs> and I actually, for some idiotic reason, I ended up drinking there, I think for two and a half months straight. I saved my receipts. I spent over $6,000 there in, two, in months? two and a half two months. And a half months. It was like... I'm actually kind of impressed. But that was the start for me in, in alcohol. Yeah. Is I would go there and I would, you know, the first cocktail I ever fell in love with was a um, improved rye whiskey cocktail. Okay. And I would come in and I, it was on the menu and I was like, I want an improved rye whiskey cocktail. And then they took it off the menu and I would come in and be like, I want an approved rye whiskey cocktail. And I would sit down and I would make them give me rye uh-huh. and I would make them give me, uh, you know, maraschino and, sure. and bitters. And like sometimes they would put absinthe in it and there was absinthe. And I would have them give me the drink and then give me all the components side by side. And I would taste them and I'd have yeah. them ring me up for another drink and I would just dissect it. And then inevitably I would just come in and say, hey, give me whatever you want. And then. Give me the three or four or nine ingredients You're that make up that cocktail. You're reverse engineering it, man. And I would taste it, and then I would drink all the different components separately. Yeah. And then decipher, like, okay, how does ice change the way that the palate perceives this? How does temperature change the way I perceive this? You know, if it's a drink that's served up, how does this change? And I started having these conversations more and more on, like, the slower Sundays and Mondays, and that inevitably drove me to, like, having the GM one day being like, hey, you want to work in bars? <laughs> And so that's how I got hired at um, at Tavern Law, okay. which is in Seattle. It's yeah. owned by the McCracken, Brian McCracken and Dana Tuff. Um, and uh, they did had, that make sense? Like at that point, because so I, this is a very very easy narrative. Like each thing you're chipping away, mm-hmm. do the music thing, which allows you to think kind of creatively, but also analytically, because you have to be this piece within a much larger organization, if you will. Right. Right. Like feeling. Right. And talk about Gershwin, and then so you move to coffee, which is to me a little a little bit less dynamic than a cocktail only because of the regionality and then a single right. bean gives you all these different flavors, blah, 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 blah. Right. Then you go into the cocktails and you're like, okay, get this, cool, good cocktail, now give me the components. Of course you're going to work at a bar. Like, right. It's like, of, of course, right? right? It makes perfect sense. They hired me for my initially for my palate, yeah. actually. Um, and I actually got hired at Liberty Bar and, oh, wow. and Tavern Law within two weeks. I got hired at Liberty first, actually, because mm. Tavern Law didn't have any room. But um, I remember sitting down with uh, Keith Waldbauer, who was one of the current owners at, at Liberty at the time. Yeah. And he was like, I don't know, baristas? And like... And Sometimes, that, yeah, I feel the same way. This was, you know, this was 2009, you know? And, and wait, actually, probably like 2010. 2010. And it didn't make sense. Yeah. And he was like, all right, we're going to take a chance. And started barbacking and you know this client i was consulting with didn't like it and inevitably i was just like man you know what i'm not really into coffee it's not a sustainable lifestyle and i was like you know what i need a break from coffee yeah i'm gonna take a sabbatical sure palate cleanser no pun intended yeah but that makes sense that's how this whole thing works yeah it's like oh well i was a lawyer but then i wanted a bartender to get my mind off the line yeah. You know. So I took a six-month sabbatical from coffee to study bartending. Mm. And like, what is it like to, to, to be in the bar world, right? There's this interesting idea, right, that the barista, as a person, prepares a person for their workday. Yeah. And inevitably, the the bartender 
kind of prepares that person to like, all right, I'm going to just stop for a quick beer. I'm going to have a quick martini. I'm going to have an old fashioned. Right. I'm going to go home. Or like, you know, maybe I'll go out with a drink with the buddies from work right mm-hmm. before I go home. Right. And there's this social lubricant, both prepping for and ending the day of mm-hmm. your work day. Right. And there's this like, the barista and the bartender are the yin and yang, right? The they bookends. Are, they are. They yeah. really are. They provide this, like, ex- they're baristas, right? In the true term of a, of a professional barista, someone who serves hot and cold, alcoholic and non-alcoholic drinks in the day and night. Interesting. And I was like, if I'm going to call myself a professional barista, if I'm going to travel the country judging the most prestigious competitions, what does it mean to be a professional? Right. And inevitably, I was like, I need to study what the what the fuck is a Manhattan? Right. I don't know what a Manhattan is. What makes Manhattan a Manhattan? Is it rye? Is it bourbon? What vermouth do you use? Why do you use that vermouth? Mm-hmm. Is it Angostura or is it orange bitter? God, are you, the, do people get really frustrated because you ask a bunch of questions all the time? I do the same thing, mm-hmm. so I know what that feels like. I, like this is brilliant. What's in it? Cool. What, what region is that from? What's I, the proof on that? I ask questions just, in a way. At the time, I was asking. I'm sure that if you were to ask these <laughs> bartenders, they'd be like, God, I fucking remember you. I hated every moment you came in. <laughs> And we all have those customers. You're sure. Like, oh God, I'm gonna go take my break now. <laughs> but like, there's, there's, um, I think at the time, I was asking questions, or I like to think I was asking questions in a way that allowed me to train myself. That was my whole philosophy in, yeah. in coffee: was don't train people, train people how to train themselves, totally. so that when they leave you, they know how to find the answers themselves. They know how to get the resources. You've given them the opportunities and the structure to be able to do these things for themselves yeah. as they move forward. And so I kind of had that philosophy in the way I taught myself too, which is don't ask someone to tell me the difference between rye and bourbon. Right. You know, like give me a rye and give me a bourbon and then let me sit there and kind of taste them and talk about, oh, this is a little bit spicier. And like, oh yeah, yeah. rye adds a little bit of a spice, mm. you know? And so that's kind of how I pursued my education without actually being involved in the alcohol industry. Did So, you know, going back to, because you talked about the junior college thing, did yeah. you ever go to the four-year uni thing? No. Did you, no. No. You, what did your folks think? Because if they're like, dude, it's, you got to buy a house, you got to have a family, it's you got to fu- get a degree. It's funny. Um, this has kind of been like the first year that my parents have come around to being like, you know, <laughs> we really didn't know what the fuck you were doing, <laughs> but here you are. You're yeah. doing just fine. Um, and, and, you know, and I can only imagine, it, you know, whenever I have kids, like looking at my kids and looking at them like, all right, yeah, move to Seattle, $200, no plan. <laughs> Gonna be a barista. Oh, great! Now you're drinking all the time. Oh, now you're working in a bar that gives you alcohol. Okay, right. awesome. I, I I see it and I get it, but I always had the drive to do something different. But I I never subscribed to the the thought process of, um, let me put a piece of paper on my wall that says I know something. You know where my degrees are? What? They're crumpled up in the top drawer in that closet there. God, I love it. You shouldn't. Is there a way to frame crumpled up pieces of paper in like a shadow box? Just get a shadow box on this wall. It's like, God, that's the most expensive fucking thing I've ever had. And besides this whiskey we're drinking. I, no, yeah. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I didn't I didn't actually know what I would go to school for. Like what would I do with psychology degree? I don't want to sit in an office. Well, yeah. What would I do with music? What's I the best know clinical do. psychology environment you could ever have? Being in a bar. Uh, yeah. Is it not psychoanalytical? Is it's it not super. behavioral? It's everything. It's and everything. And no one's hiding anything because they can't. Loose lips. <laughs> At least not after the first shot. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely second or third, you're like, okay. Yeah. Can someone give him a hug. That's and right. Like, you're falling okay, apart, man. <laughs> and I get it. Like, this is what you need to do. You stop, you know, be nice to your kids. That's how I get it, dude. It's all I'm going to do. 
So being in Seattle, I, I can already see this kind of momentum building in the alcohol side of the house, which you were going to build the, co- the coffee peas. When did you hook up with the Scrappy guys? Must have been when you lived up there, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, Scrappy's Miles Miles Thomas is actually the founder of Scrappy's. Okay. He started the company in two thousand and seven, two thousand eight, depending on you know if you're looking at it legally, or right, if you're right, like right. when he started like kind of experimenting and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and he actually bartended at Tavern Law. Oh no shit! And so at when he small was, world again, I, again we exactly happened right. So he was kind of filling this like part-time position of like, I'm kind of focusing on working a little bit with scrappies. I'm kind of focusing on bartending. I don't know where this is going mm-hmm. to like, okay, I need to focus 100% of my time with scrappies. And so he left the company and everyone moved up, which left room at the bottom. Mm-hmm. And that's where I come in. So scrappies, you know, has always been a part of my life since day one of, of bartending. Just a tool for you. And it's just been like a company that I've always liked working with. I enjoy their products. I, I've enjoyed like... You know, they were always right there. Right. You know, here's bitters, here's Angostura. You know, Regan's wasn't on the market yet. Mm-hmm. You know, here's here's stuff with glycerin in it, and right, like right. here's these bitters. And I remember being like, "Wow, these are really great." They're f- and and that's just something that happened. So when so I'm, I moved, I'm slightly familiar with them. You yeah. talk about the lavenders, which I'm familiar with that one. But mm-hmm. Give me a couple of the other flavors you think really. I mean, stand cardamom out. or cardamom's great. Yeah. Um, the chocolate bitters we work with uh, uh local. Seattle chocolate tier company that mm-hmm. does a bean to bar. It's yeah. like literally two blocks away from where we were based oh, at perfect. the time. You know, there's um, my favorite is grapefruit, black lemon, which is like black lemon. Black lemon is a dehydrated lime. It's a Mediterranean spice. Oh, it's yeah, yeah. Freaking delicious. Um, we actually discontinued that a long time ago. It was a short run, special mm-hmm. run bitters and just brought it back online. Um, this month, actually, we brought oh, it back. Killer. Yeah. But yeah, so orange grapefruit, fire water, which is a habanero tincture, stuff like yeah. that. So all this stuff. Celery. celery. Celery is my favorite. Really? Celery bitters, yeah. Celery. You put our celery bitters next to other people. Yeah, sure, it's, sure. It's delicious. It's way better. More punchy. And do you, did it it's get focused. you? Focused. Focused. Oh, I like so that. Focused bitters. It's about, it's about celery root. Exactly. Right. Celery, no, I'm kidding. There's celery seed. There's like a yeah. whole bunch of different celery uses and a lot of botanicals that support celery. Yeah. And the still let celery, celery shine. Exactly. You yeah. know, and not necessarily like. This is a bitter. Is also we put celery in it. It's yeah. like these are celery bitters, and everything that we've used supports that structure. So I, I, I like that. that's the nerdy side of the no. Bitters. I like it, and I, I can see again everything's building, and eventually you're gonna own a bar, and we'll talk about that because you have you have to. Like, there's no way you wouldn't. Like this God help me. doesn't make sense, right? You can understand the the production, but imagine again these kinds of the interest in the production piece probably kicks in at some point too. Cause like, so now you got coffee, now you get alcohol, you know, how to execute drinks, mm-hmm. you know how to talk to people, which you already probably did know how. And so what, this is a perfect bookend right, mm-hmm. for the conversation. So you go to Houston, you go to Anvil. So uh-huh. before we talk about this chapter, which I'm sure is a very formative one and one of the more recent, we're all drinking some whiskey. Yeah. And this is Heaven Hills. They must have found some shit back stocked. It's a 20-year-old from Stitzelweller. Straight bourbon rye. Yeah, 20 years old. I don't even know the proof on it. It's probably, it tastes like 46-ish. Let's take a look here. It's got a key on it. Oh. I'll tell you that much. Because only... Never mind. I'm not going to get into it. <laughs> they didn't disclose the proof on this really well. This is the second most expensive key in your house next to 40? the rent you pay on this. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's totally right. <laughs> Forty-five percent. That's about right. That's what yeah, it takes about forty-five percent. Yeah, forty-five percent. So, 
what do you think? I, this is one of the most expensive failures I've had. Now it's good mm-hmm. for not that much money. I agree. Yeah. It's crazy, if, right? If you were to give me this and and just like blind me on whiskey, yeah. I'd be like, wow, this is great whiskey. Sure. You know, but like if you were to put a Michter's tenure in front of me oh, and I'd, this, much I'd be more like, dynamic, yeah. Like I would I would mm-hmm. be equally happy and the price tag is so much different. Yeah. Michter's ten order is probably my, one of my favorite whiskeys. Totally agree. Someone recently bought me a shot of Michter's twenty at the bar. Yeah. And I just Ten's like, better. Panty no panty dropper. Yeah. I thought the twenty year was Oh it's 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 good. It's great. It it's is. great. It's I would I wouldn't go in and buy it myself, but someone bought it for me and I was like if it's gonna be my we'll get to Pappy later. But yeah, yeah. It's I was like this is great. But th- this this is actually quite it's very delicious. It's good. But it's not that good. I wish it was like better. Natural <laughs> natural strength, you know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, forty five. I feel like the middle like the whole middle palette of this thing just drops out. Mm-hmm. I totally do. Because I get front of, front of palette and then like back and then that's it. So I'm missing all of the dynamics that you love that come from mid palette. That's but that's me. But I think this is this is more of an experiment, this bottle and the kind of tasting. One of the three, things that I more, really more, more, I mean. One of the things I really, really love about <laughs> um, one of the things I really love about older um, bourbon specifically is their ability to transport me to Kentucky. Yeah. And putting me in a rick house or a barrel house. And like you smell it and you're like and you immediately picture like the black mold and the brick or the right. the the you know the metal frames on the outside and you can just like feel yourself in this in this space and you taste it and there's like the taste is you can't describe it to someone. You only taste it once you're sitting like third or fourth floor in a in a in a barrel house and yeah. you're like, This is whiskey. This is bourbon. Yeah. So you think it, it's and that's I that's something when I taste twenty year whiskeys, I want that there. I oh, want it to sure. like I want this thing better be a time capsule and I want it just or a time portal. Just like take me there right now. Yeah. But it's a, it does it's do a little that. bit there. It's a little, bit, a little there. bit there. You know the thing that we'll diverge from bourbon here in a second, but I love jazz. Yeah. Right. Jazz isn't particularly structured, but it's guttural. Yeah. And people could say like bourbon's like rock and roll, but it kind of discounts a little bit because jazz has these kinds of weird kind of cerebral notes to it too. And that's the thing that I love about bourbon. It is our jazz. It's the only thing that we in the States really have to offer the the world stage of spirits. Which is funny because so is jazz. Yeah. And jazz, is, exactly jazz right. is the American. Yeah. Um, cheeseburgers, yeah. Oh, there's some cheeseburgerness. Although I don't think we invented that shit. We, we need some cheeseburgers in here. <laughs> Do a pairing. Yeah. Oh, um, shit. That would yeah. be incredible. We're going to get some in and out. Yeah, and we're going to get some shake cheeseburgers. Yeah. <laughs> well, so how did you connect? Was it, did Bobby reach out? Did you know? You, I know you knew about Anvil before. You had to. Have. This is a really funny story. Um, so I was actually in town for the United States Barista Championships back in 2010. Okay. Hosted in Houston, Texas. Yeah. The um, George R. Brown Convention Center. Oh, um, lovely convention. Well, lovely, center. beautiful convention center. This sure. Time of year. Doesn't uh, even smell that much. No, that's not true. It's oh my god, it's horrible. I know. I was uh, trying to underplay it. Yeah, oh god, it's so bad. <laughs> Texas is. Never mind. Um, <laughs> so uh, I was in town judging the championships, and uh, the United States Special Championships always have a Sunday party, okay. and our championships of like the finals of the entire bracket are on Sunday. So there's like. Always this big Barista Guild of America, which mm. is the equivalent of the USBG. Sure. It, there's always a 
big party after the champion gets announced. And so we did um, the Barista Guild of America championship party at Anvil. And we no bought shit. out We bought out Anvil. So you have any say in that? <laughs> so on a similar, like, turns out that was going on. Okay. On a sidebar, like, I was traveling to Houston and I talked to, you know, my mentor, Keith, at the time. And I was like, hey, I'm going to Houston. I want to do a guest shift. I've never done a guest shift. We've hosted a bunch at Liberty before. Mm. Can you get me someplace? He's like, yeah, I got you. At the time, I'd only barbacked okay. at, at oh, Liberty sh- and Tavern oh. Law. And I had no idea what guest shifts meant. I just knew that it meant that someone came into your bar and they performed right. a function for the bar and then they left. Yeah. So I was, he was like, yeah, I got a guy. I know a guy. He reaches out to Bobby, <laughs> sets up a guest shift for me at Anvil. And then turns out, you know, like he's like, great, we just need a cocktail from you. I'm like, great. I get to write a cocktail. I'm going to put an egg drink. It's going to be a flip. Right. It's going to use this and rum and coffee and it's going to have turbinado and this and orange juice. And made this like elaborate flip to right, like, right. to be like, this is going to be the best coffee cocktail anyone's ever had. It's 2010, and I'm going to be like a pioneer in coffee sure. cocktails. The George Lucas of cocktails. <laughs> exactly. And so um, I show up to Anvil after judging the United States Barista Championship finals. It's been a 10-hour day. Yeah. I get an hour nap, and I show up, and Bobby's like, here you are. Here's, this, is, this is Anvil. Welcome. You know, they're setting up for you know, a two or 300-person party, yeah. you know, a buyout. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I'm, I'm walking around, and he's like, hey, this is going to be your well. And I'm like, my well, cool, okay, awesome. So what do you need me to do? He's like, you're just going to make drinks here. This, I'm I'm a guy that's doing this thing? So I had no idea that I was going to bartend. Oh, shit. So there is, let's just kind of like put this into frame for everyone who's listening. I, like the very idiot bartender I was, put a flip on a menu <laughs> for a buyout for two to 300 people. At a bar that exclusively uses cold draft ice cubes because right. it's 2010, which we still still use cold draft anvil, and they only use Boston shakers. So pint glasses ah. with tins on top, egg drinks that need, you know, like a yeah, dry yeah. shake, and then cold draft cubes. So basically the shittiest thing you can do to yourself as a bartender. <laughs> and I'm like, it's a buyout. It's going to be fine. There's only two or 300 people, maybe only 70 or 80 people make these drinks, right? Right. I think what I was told is six to seven hundred people showed up. Holy shit. I to this day I, I love hearing some of the former staff's uh like stories about that night, but they were just like every one of them has this like this like flashback to just like this moment where like, no, no, I don't want to talk about it. Were you, you know? watching yourself disappear like Marty McFly? It was pretty, yeah. <laughs> it was pretty yeah. Just like oh um so that was my first ever bartending shift it was at anvil as a guest bartender that's incredible and uh i don't even know if bobby formally knows that but i remember you know at the end of my shift bobby comes over and gives me a shot and we start talking I, i'm sure i was probably you know two sheets to the win at sure, that point sure. but um and didn't really think much about it you know anvil at that point was only a year or two old yeah um and we kind of had this like ongoing joke of like when are you gonna move to texas when is it gonna be a thing blah 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 and on social media, it was always this joke, you know, when we followed each other and friends on Facebook, Instagram, right, or, right, right. you know, Twitter, I guess, was the thing at the time. And uh, there was a couple of people who were like, the driving force behind getting me there. And at one point, he was just like, you going to do this? And I was like, no. Why not? And then it just didn't make sense. You know, I was like a beverage director. I was a bar manager. 
or I was I owned a company that yeah. like a fine dining pop up as events company that I was doing in Seattle, or I was you know involved at USBG, or I had clients. I was just busy and it didn't make sense. Yeah. And at suddenly at one point, like my lease was ending, my roommate got engaged to his fiance, and and him and his fiance were moving to, you know, have a place, right, and right. I needed to find a new apartment, a new roommate. I had just left my my consulting job, so I needed a new place to live. And I was, and Bobby was hiring. Yeah. And so I was like, hey, what's going on? And six days later, my apartment was packed up and I was on a flight. What, what year are we talking? This was two years ago, uh, next month. Wow. Yeah. Just in two years. Yeah. I had $300 and four duffel bags. It was See? crazy. Yeah. More gold and $100 more than before. The story really, like, it's starting to shape up. It sounds pretty good. So you get into Houston and like, do you hit the ground running at Anvil? Yeah. I landed at eight o'clock at night. Um, August 31st. Uh, and we are talking almost the second anniversary. Yeah, yeah. August 31st. Uh, and uh, I was supposed to be at Anvil at 11 a.m. the next day, which was uh, a Monday and Labor Day, September 1st, oh, Labor wow. Day, uh, two years ago. Crazy. How convenient that my first day at work at Anvil would be Labor Day. <laughs> well, it is literally. It literally. A place hey, of work. If this is going to be a day you're going to start working, this is going to be it right now, buddy. I don't know what you're doing, but yeah. So. I think in such a short time, you've managed to leave a big imprint on the narrative of the Houston scene. Like, this is the thing is, I try to do research to a degree, but I think it's been, you've been inextricably linked to being outspoken. Now, you're not outspoken like Bobby is. You're not pouring bottles down the drain, but... <laughs> but like I was people, taking pictures of bottles being poured down the drain. <laughs> Can I repost that? Yeah. Right, thanks. <laughs> so, but did you... Could you say you kind of came into your own here in Texas? That happens to a lot of people coming here. I think philosophically, yes. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot about myself. The reason I moved to Houston was to study under Bobby. It wasn't yeah. necessarily to work at Anvil. It was the opportunity to to mentor someone like Bobby. Mm-hmm. And I really had no idea what I was getting involved in. And it kind of happened on accident. And honestly, it's been the best thing that's ever happened to me, not just professionally in my career, but also like, you know, in my life like he's had a profound impact on how i view things and how i you know think about my life as an owner operator potentially as yeah. as a bartender as a human how i maintain balance in my life and like he's really shaped me a lot but you know it's it's an interesting uh interesting journey i should say of course has you know? to be but we wouldn't be here if it wasn't interesting you know yes. what i mean there's got to be the ups and the downs again the homelessness and the struggling and the sweating and being underprepared, yeah, getting castigated by Bobby, I'm sure, which happened plenty of times. Yeah. To, to to me as kind of an outsider, and eventually I would love to chat with Bobby. There's much to talk about with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is he? Who we think he is? No. As this, I don't think so either. No, he I is, think he is a social social media darling, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, but it seems like he's a real dude that is not that. He's the best business owner you could possibly ever dream to work with. Yeah. And I like, I mean that so whole, wholeheartedly, like he always has the staff's best interest at mind. Mm-hmm. You know, he always takes care of us on a personal level, on a professional level. He, you know, he checks in on us. He, you know, like he just takes care of us and he cares. Yeah. And both financially, you know, we're fine. You know, like how many bars, you know, that pay for their employees, like health, Health insurance. Oh yeah, it's not a thing. You no, know, I have I have dental and vision as a bartender. Like, what wow. the fuck is that? That doesn't exist. You know, yeah. that doesn't come from someone who's like, 
well, I guess we should do this. It comes from someone who has compassion and cares. And, you know, he's, that's, I think that's something that sets him apart is that he does these things because he cares and because he wants to like influence us and he wants to like help shape us to be people. He doesn't care about like, yeah, the bar is important and it's important to him, but like, you know, he cares so much about the people that work for him. And like those people are more important to him than, than the bar itself. Do you, do you think that, and this is something I kind of think about because my mom's this way a little bit. She's very, very selfless. She wants to make sure that my brother and I are always taken care of. Not mm-hmm. spoiled, right? Do you feel like him taking care of his, which is an, is an amazing thing. Like you you have to do that if you're a conscionable business owner. You have, have to do, do you? that stuff. Because well, I think, I've, I think, a very I, small percentage of business owners actually do do that. No, I you're right. I feel like it's an, an ethical obligation to a degree. And like I'm talking to having employees and thinking about bonuses and stuff like mm-hmm. how, how else do I show my appreciation? You know, so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm caught in those times too where I have to think about that. But do you think that it's at the sake of is it ever that you guys or the way that you are successful and how you're taking care of comes at the stake of his personal comfort or his personal career? Or is it what really makes his career? If that makes sense, kind of like martyrdom in a sense. And I'm I, not trying. I can't. Not a critical thing. I, you know, I can't. I can't go too much into Bobby's personal life, but yeah. I know he's made sacrifices at on behalf of the staff. Yeah, and like, like he'll he'll never. You know, if you ever get a chance to sit on some of his seminars and where he talks about, yeah. you know, um, are you personally ready to be a bar owner, and what that means, and like what that takes as a person, and the sacrifice right. you have to make. You know, I know he's done that, um, and. I think it's something that, you know, it, it it's very clear in, in the business, but it's not something that he talks about to the bar staff. Yeah. You know, I know about it because I sit in on those seminars and I go to those seminars or, you know, people I know reach out to me about them. And, yeah. but it's not something that we talk about as a staff, you know? Um, well, there's that line too, man. Mm-hmm. Cause it's like, you're a leader, you've got staff. Yeah. You also want to be accessible and real and transparent, but at the same time, he does a great job of being an owner and being a leader. Yeah. And then the management structure at Anvil really focuses that attention yeah you know and i think that that they do that very very well it's good it is a fucking cultural mecca a cocktail mecca like anytime anyone would go to houston you'd have to stop by you just have to yeah but no one comes to houston well i'm just trying to i've been trying to get the fuck away from houston for years (laughs) but (laughs) i left in 2000 i tried to i went back maybe three or four times absolutely imperative that i went but otherwise i don't i won't go but i I, I will visit more because there's so much going on and it's a great spots, you know. Have you seen it change that much in these even two years? Yeah, huge amounts, huge amounts. I think that, you know, I'm the education chair on the on the USBG, um, on the board there, and, and it's funny to see how much the Houston community has changed because I think for a long time, at least when I first came into it, mm. there was a lot of angst in the younger generation. You know, you had yeah. like, these key players throughout different bars that drove the national vision of Houston. Right. And like, that's all people knew, you know, yeah, yeah. like we could name a bunch of cities that only have one big key player in it. Right. And we're just like, well, I wouldn't go there to see that one person's bar. Who's not going to be there. Right, right, right. And all of a sudden there's this younger generation of bartenders who people know because a lot of our vision with the USBG since I've been involved has been to, make houston a place that people understand to make mm. houston and texas in general and that third coast uh an area that people Represent. respect you know like yeah exactly like 
you have the East Coast, West Coast, and no one gives a fuck about what's in between, you know? Yeah. It's like, oh, you're not in Chicago? You know, but like Houston, Austin, Dallas. I haven't been to San Antonio, so sorry, guys. But, you know, so, but insane talent. It's unparalleled talent. And we have it's so insane. It is. Just the sheer size of the city and having markets that can sustain a whole brand just by themselves to have those brilliant minds that run through each of those markets. Yeah. It's insane. Like San Antonio, insane. Yeah. Jarrett's whole stuff. Like, He's building this fucking like crazy, almost mob-like arsenal of talent and bars there, you know. And a lot of people don't realize because they're like, "Oh, San Antonio, well, they get the Alamo, right?" You yeah. know, like they don't. It's a, it's an afterthought that there's right. these things that are bubbling out this culture. But you feel like the younger kids, oh, these younger kids, right? No, <sighs> I try not to sound Andy Rooney-ish about this fucking stuff. But, ah, Andy Rooney. <laughs> yes. But they seem like far more engaged, articulate, and driven than any other wave that I've seen so far since I've been in this industry? I think that they, gosh, there's so much philosophical we could talk about. Sure. You're so psych major to psych major, yeah. bro. You know, <laughs> we'll circle back around to like Jim Meehan's recent thing about the modern bartender. But I, I think that if you look at the progression of being a bartender and the way it currently stands, like we're able to, for the first time, redefine what it means to be a bartender professionally that's respected by the yeah, general public. Absolutely. It's why the general public looks for a, a term like mixologist and why we as professionals reject it because we don't need the a financial advisor or, or an accountant for a Fortune 500 company is still called an accountant if that's they right. work for a small nonprofit. But yeah, it's like a, a collective conscience of America trying to round it out and fancify it. Right. Where it's, we know that there's an implicit respect there. There's an implicit... Uh, amount of talent there's a there's there's a lucrative nature now to this right. industry but for some reason bartenders it's kind of mm, you're a bartender you know it's got and this I, weird i think for the first time in a, in, in a century we're, we're seeing a general acceptance of that as a career yeah. you know and if you look at like maybe not my generation but like the people that my mentors mentored right. are the people that have like are the audrey saunders yeah. you know it's those people that have like really like Murray Stenson mm-hmm. and the people that have like made a profound impacts on this community because they brought in that first generation of bartenders that were like, hey, we could open up bars like this. Yeah. And then those people kind of brought in a new group of people who then opened up the first generation of cocktail bars. And now we're seeing, you know, the second or third generation of bartenders who are looking up to these second generation bars that have come up yeah. through mentoring people who opened up those first generation bars and they've the pendulum has swung back and forth and they're finding balance both in mind in how they you know healthy lifestyles mm-hmm. mindfulness meditation yoga healthy um diets they're not smoking or maybe they are smoking right or you're not you know excessive consumption or maybe they're not like you know um, partying all the time. And what, did, what did Jim say about this? I, I hadn't read this. So this modern, yeah, yeah. So thing. Lucky Peach just did an article that kind of rounded it up. If you're not someone who likes to, or who likes to read, but I'm personally someone who's much more tangible. TLDR. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, um, Poor did a uh, a video. They did um, a, this the seminar series in uh, France. The name's escaping me right now. It was in Paris about a month yeah, ago. Yeah. Um, but he did a seminar there talking about the modern bartender, what it means to be a modern bartender. And what's mm-hmm. happening is that more so now than ever, our public is more engaged. The consumer has access to more knowledge that the demand to say, hey, this bartender can make 
Ramos and fizzes on cold draft ice in three and a half minutes. Why are you taking four? Right. That like the knowledge base and the access to Yelp and pictures and stuff like this is pushing our bartenders as a whole farther than they've ever been pushed in the professional world. Yeah. And at the, that's happening at the same time that bartenders are having this respect. So what does that mean to the sustainable lifestyle of a bartender and what's happening? Yeah. And so it's, it's an interesting, um, battle that we're having in this industry and it's why i don't want to go to tales but no i understand like is that tales is the epitome of like recklessness and excessive drinking and an unhealthy Your lifestyle body is a whipping boy yeah, drinking, yeah and that's not like as a bartender that's not something i personally like want to embody and stuff like that yeah and so i'm either. just like you know it's it's something so you're that, gonna go yeah i'll be there for four days <laughs> i refuse to go i'm gonna run the business from austin still and i'm going to treat my body with some respect it's always different. There's I'm, I'm going to wake up every morning and go running. Yeah, exactly. Well, there you go. Yeah. I, I just like, I don't, I'm not, I'm not going to any of the parties. I have a dinner planned. I have a uh, a private tasting planned and I'm going to the spirited dinners and yeah. that's it. That's good to be calculated like that. Because you've got to, again, if you don't take care of yourself now, you're going to get real fucked. And then we're seeing far and far too many people expire earlier than they should. It's exactly what Jim Meehan talks about. Yeah. You know, it's, is that he's like... Being in this industry, you know, is like a light and like how long will you burn it? And like, what is the, what are you going to, how are you going to shine on this industry? Yeah. Are you going to burn out because you make unhealthy lifestyles? Like, right. you know, if you want to stay in this world forever as a, not forever, but if you want to do this as a career, yeah, yeah. you can't stay out till five in the morning smoking two packs of cigarettes a day and a bottle of whiskey. No. Like I go to the gym every day after work. Yeah. I work out. Me too. Every, every day. It's 4 a.m. sometimes, but I work out. It doesn't matter. You have to do it. I feel better. It's better well, yeah, than because de- you're literally yeah. flushing the toxins out. I mean, it's a quite it's quite helpful to do that. It's it's a decompressing. I either sit at a bar or at home with like my shirt off, pants may or may not be on, drinking right. a bottle of whiskey, you know, and like pulling the cork out with my my teeth and spitting <laughs> it on the ground and just drinking until I pass out, or I work out yeah. and I feel great and I have some a bite to eat. And I get ready for bed and I go to sleep and I feel great the next morning. Absolutely, because you're and- better. at... You're better at your career and you're better to people when you're better physically and mentally, which the two are completely linked. Yeah. You know? yeah I don't think people understand that in the bar. I don't think world. so either, but people don't want to be healthy. It's hard. So the last question I got for you, because of course this is the natural progression yeah. and evolution, you're going to, you know you're going to open a place eventually. I will open a place okay. eventually. See? Good. It will not be a bar. No. Yeah. Not a massage parlor. Those are pretty happening in Houston. All right. Well, yeah, now I can't talk about that. <laughs> um, no, the Velvet it, Touch charges by the stroke. That's <laughs> uh, what I vote now. It will. It will. Uh, my first establishment will not be a bar. Okay, that's um, good. Maybe I. There will be a bar component to it, but it will not be a bar. Yeah. Um, I'm working on that right now, so we'll good. see. We'll see. But, um, I I just. Being a hospitality professional, I don't think that my best use of time is necessarily in bars to really like deliver some of the ideas and concepts I have. I think there's some really interesting uh, concepts in hospitality that can be, um, that can really change the way that we both in bars and and coffee shops and in in hotels and hostels perceive hospitality and how we deliver that type of experience. And that's what I'm going to focus on. I have no doubt that you're unique collection of experiences and your portfolio of talent see i should be in pr probably right i'll write your resume if you okay want. Awesome. <laughs> npr gosh i need that no but it's it's good man i, I mean 
I can tell you're driven and I can tell you're a really insightful, intelligent dude. So, you know, this isn't the last thing you're going to do and it's not going to be the biggest. I We're going to have you in Houston and we're going to flip the mics around. Oh, shit. And we're just, it's going to be like me and like Bobby <laughs> and maybe like Alba and Justin Burroughs. And we're going to drink a bottle of whiskey <laughs> and then just give you like Topo Chico. And yeah, just like, wait, 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 hang on. Let's, let's, let me tell you something about. <laughs> And then we'll just. Was that a good. question? <laughs> what the fuck was that? Wasn't a question. You guys are just pointing at me. What is anyway, dude. Well, it's brilliant. You're in town. Thanks so much for meeting up. And it's a it's great to on a Sunday night sip some whiskey with you. It's great yeah. to get to good know whiskey you, too. man. Thanks so much, Ox. Yeah. Well, there we have it. What do you guys think of Mr. Alex Negranza, formerly of the Liberty in Seattle, at Anvil, slinging those drinks and also traveling around preaching the gospel of scrappy. Bitters. Also in the room, I guess you guys might have heard some sad conversation with Stuart Humphreys of Passing Provision in Houston as well. So it's good chatting with Alex. It's good to talk to more coffee guys. You know, there's a whole other world out there outside of this industry that runs exactly parallel, almost an alternative dimension in the coffee world. Thanks so much, Alex, for stopping by. And thanks so much for sipping some of that fine 20-year-old Stutzel Weller at my house. And thank you, everybody, for listening to Show to V with Mike G. No matter who you think gets killed in tonight's season premiere of The Walking Dead on AMC, and no, they don't pay me to say that, or what you really think of William Lustig's 1980 Maniac, please keep things. <laughs>